This is from the end of a new translation of the story of Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse. There slowly bloomed and ripened in Siddhartha the realization and knowledge of what wisdom this, the object of his long quest really was. It was nothing more than a readiness of the soul, a mysterious knack, the ability at every moment in the midst of life to think the thought of unity, to feel and breathe unity. Gradually this blossomed in him, shone back to him from the ancient child's face of Vasudeva. Harmony, knowledge of the eternal perfection of the world, unity, a smile. But the wound still burned. Passionately and bitterly, Siddhartha dwelled on his son, nurtured the love and tenderness in his heart, let the pain of it consume him, indulged in all the foolishness of love. This was not a flame that went out by itself. One day, when the wound was burning fiercely, Siddhartha crossed the river, driven by longing. He climbed out of the boat, intending to go to the city and look for his son. The river was flowing gently and quietly. It was the dry season, but there was something unusual about its voice. It was laughing. It was clearly laughing. The river was laughing, laughing loudly and plainly at the old ferryman. Siddhartha stopped, bent over the water to hear better, and in the quietly moving water, he saw the reflection of his face. In this reflected face, there was something that recalled something forgotten. And as he thought about it, he remembered. This face was like another face he had once known and loved and also feared. It resembled the face of his father, the Brahmin. And he remembered how, long ago as a youth, he had forced his father to let him go with the ascetics. How he had left him, gone off, and never returned. Had his father not felt the same pain over him that he now felt over his son? 
had his father not long since died, alone, without having ever seen his son again, should he not expect the same fate himself? Was it not comical, a strange and stupid thing, this repetition, this movement in the same fateful circles? The river laughed. Yes, so it was. Everything returned that had not been suffered through to the end and resolved. The same pains were always suffered again. Siddhartha got back in the boat and rowed back to the hut, thinking of his father and of his son, with the river laughing at him, tending in his mind toward despair and tending not less toward joining in the laughter at himself and the whole world. flowering yet. His heart was still fighting his fate. Cheerfulness and victory had yet to shine forth from his chagrin. But he felt hope. And when he got back to the hut, he had an indomitable longing to open himself to Vasudeva, to expose everything to that master of listening, to tell him everything. Vasudeva was sitting in the hut weaving a basket. He no longer worked the boat. His eyes had begun to get weak and his arms and hands too. All that remained unchanged, still glowing, was the joy and cheerful goodwill in his face. Siddhartha sat down by the old man and slowly began talking. Things that they had never talked about he talked about now, about the time he had gone back to the city, about the burning wound, about his jealousy when he saw happy fathers, about knowing better about such desires and yet struggling in vain against them. He described everything, he was able to say everything, even the most awkward things. He was able to say everything expose everything, recount everything. He described his wound, told about the events of the day, how he had crossed the river like a runaway child intending to go to the city, and how the river had laughed. As he spoke, and he went on for a long time, Vasudeva listened to him with his face still, and Siddhartha felt more than ever the power of Vasudeva's listening. He felt his pains and anxieties going over to him, crossing over and coming back from the other side. Exposing his wound to this listener was the same as bathing it in the river until it was cooled and became one with the water. As he went on speaking, continuing to unbosom and confess himself, 
Siddhartha felt more and more that it was no longer Vasudeva, no longer a person who was listening to him. That this unmoving listener soaking up his confession into himself as a tree draws in rain, this motionless being was the river itself, God himself, the eternal itself. And when Siddhartha stopped thinking about himself and his wound, the knowledge of Vasudeva's changed nature took possession of him. And the more he felt it and penetrated into it, the more wondrous it became, the more he realized that everything was in order, was natural. And he realized that Vasudeva had been that way for a long time, almost always. It was only he who had not completely recognized it. And yes, he realized that he himself hardly differed from Vasudeva anymore. He had the impression that he was now seeing old Vasudeva the way ordinary people see the gods, and that this was not something that could last. He began to take leave of Vasudeva in his heart, and all the while he went on talking. When Siddhartha had talked himself out, Vasudeva turned his kindly, now weakened gaze on him, and without speaking, silently radiated love and cheerfulness to him, radiated understanding and wisdom. He took Siddhartha by the hand, led him to the seat on the riverbank, sat down with him at the river, smiling. You have heard him laugh, he said, but you have not heard everything. Let's listen. You will hear more. Siddhartha and Vasudeva listened. Suddenly came the many-voiced song of the river. Siddhartha looked into it, and in the moving water, images appeared to him. His father appeared alone, mourning for his son. He himself appeared alone, also tied with bonds of longing to his faraway son. His son appeared, also alone, lusting stormily along the burning pathway of his youthful desires. 
Each was bent on his object, each possessed by his object, each suffered. The river sang with a voice of suffering. Passionately it sang. Passionately it flowed towards its goal, its voice lamenting. Do you hear? asked Vasudeva's mute glance. Siddhartha nodded. Listen closer, whispered Vasudeva. Siddhartha made the effort to listen closer. The image of his father, his own image, the image of his son flowed into one another. Kamala's image also appeared and dissolved. Govinda's image and other images appeared and fused with one another and all became the river. All moved as the river toward their objects, their goals, passionate, hungering, suffering. And the river's voice was full of longing, ardent with sorrow, full of unquenchable longing. The river strove toward toward its goal. Siddhartha saw it hurrying on, this river composed of himself and those near him and of all the people he had ever seen. All the waves and currents hurried onward, suffering toward objects, many goals. The waterfall, the lake, the rapids, the sea, and all the goals were reached, and each was followed by a new one. And the water became vapor and climbed into the sky, became rain and crashed down from the sky, became springs, brooks, became a river, strove on again, flowed anew, but the passionate voice had changed. It still had the sound of suffering, questing, but other voices were added, voices of joy and suffering, good and evil voices, laughing and lamenting voices, a hundred, a thousand voices. Siddhartha listened. now all listener, completely one with listening, completely empty, completely receptive. He felt now that he had completed his learning of how to listen. He had often heard all these things before, these many voices in the river, but today he heard it in a new way. Now he no longer distinguished the many voices, the happy from the grieving, the childlike from the manly. They were all part of each other. Longing laments, the laughter of the wise, the cries of the angry, the moans of the dying, all were one. All were interwoven and linked, intertwined in a thousand ways. And everything together All the voices, all the goals, all the striving, all the suffering, 
all the pleasure. Everything together was the river of what is, the music of life. And when Siddhartha listened attentively to the thousandfold song of the river, when he did not fasten on the suffering or the laughing, when he did not attach his mind to one voice and become involved in it with his ego, when he listened to all of them, the whole, when he perceived the unity, then the great song of a thousand voices formed one single word, Om, perfection. spoken by Ananda, disciple of the Buddha. Do not think of the past, 
Do not worry about the future. Things of the past have died. The future has not arrived. What is happening in the present should be observed deeply. The wise ones live according to this and dwell in stability and freedom. If one practices the teachings of the wise one, why should one be afraid of death? If we do not understand this, there is no way to avoid the great pain of the final danger. To practice diligently, one should recite this gatha day and night. This is a reflection of Thomas Merton. It's a prayer, one of a series of prayers written in the Christian tradition that are called prayers of abandonment. 
prayers of letting know of a sense of what comes next. We move now into that part of the year where the days are shorter and darker. I like to think that that echoes the work of the heart and the soul in turning inward and using this as a particular time of reflection, reflection in the dark, waiting for the light, waiting for the outer light as the earth turns in its predictable and trustworthy cycle once again towards the light, waiting for the heart to turn in its predictable and trustworthy return into light and understanding and into peace. This is Thomas Merton's prayer. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust in you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Thank you. 
This is a contemporary translation of Psalm 121, also a recognition of the vastness, inscrutableness, hugeness, lawfulness of cosmic design, and the faith that comes from resting in that lawfulness. Look at nothing. Everything is revealed. Rest in the radiance of natural mind. The joy of your discovery will strengthen your dedication to unwavering mindfulness because the perfection of emptiness as the source of creation is always, always accessible. Whenever this is clear to you, wisdom and compassion will guide you. You will be safe. Your actions will be impeccable. Untroubled by fear and confusion, you will be peaceful and happy. This is a translation of the Metta Sutta, <coughs> description of the refuge of the natural heart of peace. This is the work of those who are skilled and peaceful who seek the good. Maybe they be upright and able, straightforward of gentle speech and not proud. May they be content and easily supported unburdened, with their senses calmed. May they be wise, not arrogant, and without desire for the possessions of others. May they do nothing mean, or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they live in safety and joy. All living beings, whether weak or strong, tall, stout, average or short, seen or unseen, near or distant, born or to be born, may they all be happy. Let no one deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish to harm another. As a mother watches over her child, willing to risk her own life to protect her only child, 
So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, suffusing the whole world with unobstructed loving-kindness. Standing or walking, sitting or lying down, during all one's waking hours, may one remain, remain mindful of the heart and this way of living that is the best in the world. Unattached, unattached to speculations, to views, and to sense desires, with clear vision, such a person will never be reborn into the cycles of suffering. These next few minutes, I'd like you to just use this time of silence to reflect for a little bit on what the work of your own heart is in this time of 
moving into days of inwardness. What's the work that your heart is doing in this internal part of the year? What's the light that's waiting to shine? What are the ways in which you let go without knowing? And wait, as T.S. Eliot says, wait without hope, because to hope might be to hope for the wrong thing. How do you wait in faith and trust without knowing the outcome? What supports you in the waiting? What nourishes your faith? What do you trust? We all get frightened. What do you trust when you're most frightened? What are you most frightened of? 
can you even tell yourself? Do I even know? What do you know for sure? Vasudeva said to Siddhartha, listen harder, listen again. What do you say to yourself? What would you say to someone else? if you were the Vasudeva of their lives. We are each of us for each other, the Vasudevas of each other's lives. Here particularly we've come to trust each other as sharing that heart of Siddhartha that recognized suffering and wanted so much to be free of it. I'd like to invite you to open your eyes when you're ready. Look around and See who else is here. Room full of each of us Siddhartha and each of us also Vasudeva. What I'd like very much in the next few minutes is for each of us to think about giving a gift to the person next to them of a piece of wisdom, a thought of what sustains, an instruction. Look deeper, listen harder. What do you do? What was the instruction you thought of for yourself? If you have Vasudeva for the person next to you, So whoever is next to you, one person or two persons, you don't have to speak, you know. You could just hold their hand. (laughs) (laughs) Or look at them. Or give them a kiss. (laughs) Or smile. Or tell them a good word. But I think each of us should hear our own voice and feel our own feel or come into some relational experience with someone else here. 
so that we share our lives and our hearts and our journey with someone else in a way that's manifest, tangible. I'd like to invite you to do it really quietly. Whisper. All wisdom teachings are to, ought to be whispered, I think. Edie will play a little bit quietly in the background so that your whispering is private whispering. <laughs> Whisper for five minutes. Otherwise, hold hands.
I'd like to do something else special now. I thought to myself, it's not fair to say my share out loud because then I'd have to really, if I were fair, ask everyone to say their share out loud. <laughs> so in the full acknowledgement that it's not fair. <laughs> I want to say about what, uh, what a sustenance and support the fact that we meet together is to me. And... Uh, how much of my own uh, trust that this journey that we are each of us on is a feasible journey rests on having uh, fellow travelers who, uh, by their very presence, confirm in me that there's a trip to be made and a job to be done and a freedom to be earned and the possibility of it. And there's a piece of the heart that's attainable in this lifetime, not for good and all, but from time to time. And that, especially when it isn't there in place for good and all, the company of friends is the biggest support. In a big enough company of friends, there's always someone whose heart at that moment remembers the truth. So when one's own forgets, Someone else's remembers. So I think that we are, in a sense, the keepers of each other's faith. We'll pass it around, maybe, and say, you hold it this week, and you hold it next week. And You know, of course, when we're here together week after week, we always know about people who have been part of the group who have different, more strong challenges in their life. Their own health or well-being is challenged. or The people that are their closest kin or people they lose. Sometimes I think that the whole of life is uh, accommodating to loss. It is, really. doesn't mean that there isn't beauty and goodness and poetry and art and music and wonder and awe and delight. There are all those things. And thankfully there are all those things. How would we do it otherwise? Because otherwise what we would be left with would be loss and accommodating to loss. Really fortunate that we have human hearts that... um, appreciate beauty and wonder and awe and are uplifted by them. 
minds and souls that make poetry, make music, tell stories, fall in love, give presents. All of those things were so fortunate. The other capacity of the heart for which I think we are amazingly fortunate is the capacity to heal, that we can get better, that the most devastating things can and do in the course of all of our lives happen to us. And impossibly, we get back up again and do more. Not right away. Not right away. And for every one of us, differently, there is no rule, I'm sure, for healing. But I think there is the fact of healing and the truth that hearts heal. For which I am very grateful and in which I put a lot of trust. So I thought this morning Edie would talk a little bit about um, three things, really about um, how her music is uh, really dharma and the dharma of listening and uh, the path of waking up through listening and through music, through creating it, through listening to it, being with the spaces in between. I thought she'd also talk about uh, practice as a way of entering into the darkness, the mystery, mystery of the whole life and the mystery particularly of healing in times of grief. And then I asked her as well, to tell a little bit about what all these wonderful instruments are and where she learned them. And when I said, Edie, I'm going to ask you to talk about all those three things, she said, tell me one at a time. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm telling you three at a time so you'll know all the things that Edie will say and you can be sure that she'll talk about them. So Edie, one at a time, would you talk about all of this is a practice mm-hmm. and is a dharma and how you learned about it. Well, I think I, I'd like to start with um, with a gata that, from Thich Nhat Hanh that um, really impressed me. And it came to me the same time as I started learning about um, playing these Tibetan bowls and bells. And uh, so I'll, I'll play a little and I'll say it. First the gata and then his poem. Listen. Listen. This wonderful sound brings me back to my true self. This is his poem called The Sound of the Bell. The pure sound of the bell summons us 
into the present moment. The timeless ring of truth is expressed in many different voices, each one magnifying and illuminating the sacred. The clarity of its song resonates within us and calls us away from those things which often distract us, that which was, that which might be, to that which is. I began thinking about music as Dharma after I had been playing music for many, many years. And I think the first, first time this came to me when, was when I was invited to uh, create music for Thich Nhat Hanh's poems. And I listened to the poems for a year before I started playing. And I listened really to the sound of the words and the silence between the words. And I began to be aware that the silence between the notes is as full of uh, bringing us back to ourselves as is the sound of the notes. And so uh, I had studied Japanese music in Kyoto and in this country for quite a long while. And I began to be interested in, in ways that playing and listening to music could um, help me use my breath as a way to return my attention and also to focus my attention. So that these two parts of our practice, I began practicing with music and uh, I found it uh, a wonderful way to support my own inner listening. Um, I'd like to read you another poem um, that goes with the, f the flute pieces I played. It's called Live Inside a Pure Hollow Note. Inside a pure hollow note, space opens for spirit to be held in the sound of silence. I've been thinking how much of, of all of God's music, silence is the most sublime, and how grateful I am for the way we sit here in silence. And the moment that I come into the room, I actually feel this change inside my body from the silence. And in a way, music sort of frames the silence. It, it gives a container so that we can dwell in the silence and be held by the perimeter of the music. Um, so that's one way I started thinking about music as dharma. Um, another way was after my son died, I decided that I would dedicate myself to playing music for peace. 
And I began to look for ways that I could do that, look for different contexts, personal ones for people like myself who, who were um, grieving, who wanted to be in a quiet place and, and listen to music and listen to the sound of the bells. And uh, Mijo and, and I started a, we have a small sangha uh, in Berkeley when we, we play the bells. And for a period of time, we would um, have bells meditation and just listen inside the sound of the bell, as, as Ty has suggested. Um, I began playing for peace demonstrations. I remember when the Gulf War took place, um, we called a town meeting in Berkeley, and we all convened to share our, our collective grief for this, this devastating moment of entering the war. And um, people spoke, and I played music. I think that the moment of playing for peace that touched me most deeply was um, two moments, really. One in Sarajevo, when I, I played with women. And um, I met with women's circles. And in the circle, I, I spoke about the reason that I'd come there and that I had come first to work with children after my own child had died because I wanted to be with other mothers who had suffered. And in that circle of women, each woman told a story. And at the end of the circle, they told me they had never spoken these stories to each other. And they told, one woman told about seeing her mother hung on the balcony by the Serbs as a retribution for keeping staying in her apartment. And we each listened very carefully to each other. And I just felt the this extraordinary um, compassion and, and uh, service and healing that we give when we listen to each other. And I think that's, that's what came to me in the, in the gift as, as we were speaking and I was playing, was what an extraordinary gift our presence of listening is to each other. And one of the women said, um, during the war, the birds all stopped singing. There were no birds in Sarajevo, none. That special sound ended. And after the war, at the moment when I came back, um, when I, when I was in Sarajevo, the birds were singing. And I was so moved. I, I wrote a piece, and I'd like to play just a little of it. Because I, I just this thought of the birds coming back to Sarajevo and singing again, I thought, what a miracle. <laughs> 
So I'll play just a little bit of These Are the Birds coming back to Sarajevo. That's just a fragment of the piece, actually. Um, so I was thinking, thinking about this quality of listening and how listening to each other and listening in playing music and in and receiving music, <clears throat> how those that quality of listening so um, opens our heart and and can give us hope. Um, Sylvia, when you were just talking and when I was listening to the Siddhartha story, and I was thinking about um, these seven years of what I have, to me feels like completing a, a looking deeply into the nature of grief, um, which I tried to give some shape to by music. Um, I was remembering a moment with my dear friend Susan Felix, who came to me a day right or two after Jonathan died, and she brought me one of her beautiful bowls. And I was sleeping on the sofa, and during the night I, I bumped the bowl and it broke. And I was just brokenhearted, and I had a, an attack of, of all of the worst of the aversions of self-hate and how could I have done that? First my son, and now I can't even take care of a beautiful bowl. And, and every, every part of, of myself rose up in that moment. And then the next day I told Susan, and I was just heartbroken. And, and Susan took the pieces back, and she mended it. And then she brought it back to me. And it was mended with gold. And in Japan, when a very precious tea bowl breaks, it's mended with gold. And that image has stayed with me ever since, Susan. It was so wonderful. And, I, and Susan demonstrated as, to me how important our capacity for being present and listening is. And, she didn't try to fix me. She just reminded me of what I already knew about Japan, actually. And so that image of, of the heart that breaks, it's, that can be mended with gold, is one that has stayed with me and 
meant a lot to me. I've thought a lot about the um, the rivers of loss in the in the poem that Susan shared when her mother died. Also, the rivers of loss that that we all really somehow have to navigate. And how is it that we look inside ourselves and and find an enduring inner light? And I, I think one of the ways that has been most helpful for me has been um, being in the presence of dear ones and the Sangha who listens. And then, of course, the other side of that is um, having the opportunity to be the one who speaks and be listened to, so that we both have both of these um, capacities in us. And I, I think what's what I so much appreciate about how you teach is that we have both those opportunities here to to deeply listen and really to speak from the deepest part of our hearts. Um, for me, speaking with music is somehow I feel I can say more clearly and more completely um, what I feel with music. So I very much appreciated being able to speak both with words and with music with you. I think I'd like to read um, one piece from the Upanishads that was a piece that stayed with me all during the time that I was grieving. Self is everywhere, shining forth from all beings, vaster than the vast, subtler than the most subtle, unreachable, yet nearer than breath, than heart to beat. Eye cannot see it, ear cannot hear it, nor tongue utter it. Only in deep absorption can the mind, grown pure and silent, merge with the formless truth. He who finds it is free. He has found himself. He has solved the great riddle. His heart forever is at peace. Whole, he enters the whole. His personal self returns to its radiant, intimate, deathless source. Actually, I think I'd like to read you one more poem that goes with um, <coughs> music. Goes with this flute. <coughs> Drink the moon's reflection. Drink the moon's reflection in open space of emptiness. 
Music of night stretches out time, enlarging space, filling me with spirit. I move over the waters of moonlight. When Edie and I thought about what we would do this morning, 
made a plan that so far has followed more or less the plan that we had. <coughs> and I said, at this point, probably people would have questions and maybe we'd ask them. And I realized that as I sit here, anything that I might articulate in words If I had uh, an answer at all, or I learned something, there's another way to say that. One of the things that I've learned, <coughs> perhaps a central point that I learned from Edie's teaching, is how much I... Uh, I learn by not asking, but by waiting and listening. So I'd like to suggest that we sit for another three minutes in silence and then have some three, four minutes of playing, and then we'll ring the bell.
So in this season of longer darkness, 
shortening days. Anticipation of um, holidays that talk about the rebirth of hope. And the sustaining quality of faith and dedication. Kind of hope that brings light into the world and the light that sustains the world and the light of awakening. All kinds of candles, candles of joy. And thanksgiving. Think about, especially in these days of thinking about gifts, What's the very best gift that we can each give each other? Not much more that we can give in the way of a gift than uh, the gift of our lives and our presence and our interest and our support, none of which you have to go out and get anywhere because we come equipped with it. I think about, as I just think about that, I think about all the instruction manuals that come with all the <laughs> gadgets that you buy. <coughs> and I think about the fact that, on the one hand, maybe we don't need an instruction manual to respond with a caring heart. It's built into us. We could figure it out. And on the other hand, we could get a little rusty. So maybe we need uh, sets of instructions and friends whose uh, vision at one point or another is better than ours so they can read us the instructions. All we have to do is have enough friends who have memorized the instructions. (laughs) And then we can go on this season and every season giving each other really the gift of hope, keeping the faith for each other. And then uh, we could all just uh, have a very short vocabulary. We could just say thank you. I'm pretty sure that thank you and I love you are about the same. I keep imagining that if we say thank you and I love you enough to enough people, then the whole world will wake up out of the darknesses that come both in seasons and in hearts. And all say thank you to each other. Then we could have a universal greeting card, you know. We, uh, we wouldn't have to um, have a greeting card that said um, Merry Christmas or Happy Hanukkah or Happy Anything. 
And it would be really a very economical, functional greeting card because you could send it throughout the year. Um, it would say something like, um, in this season of rededicating ourselves to waking up to the possibility of enlightened hearts and minds that embrace each other and the whole world and take good care of each other and the whole world. May the light of awareness shine. And then we could just send it any old time. <laughs> Thank you, Edie. Thank you, Sylvia. Mm. <coughs> Turn off the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.